Well, good morning, Snowden Baptist Church. Um, I must say that uh, uh, it has been a, uh, a humbling uh, morning for me uh, this morning as I sat in Sunday school and uh, we were looking at James chapter 3 and the proper use of the tongue. Um, I joked with uh, Fred that he ought to maybe get up here and preach this morning instead of me after that lesson. Uh, but nevertheless, here I am. And then again, to hear Charles read uh, those New Testament passages, I want to tell you uh, from the beginning of the ministry here that I am a person who trembles under those injunctions that are in the New Testament about pastoral leadership. I don't enter in on this lightly by any stretch of the imagination, and I do uh, very much uh, depend on and appreciate your prayers, uh, not only for me, but for our family as well. Um, Our family is so very thankful. Uh, There are so many people who deserve thanks. Uh, You have blessed us and welcomed us uh, in so many different ways, and if I named every name, I'd be up here for probably well into lunch, so I won't do that, Uh, but you know who you are. Uh, For all the ways that you have prayed for us, have encouraged us, uh, you've brought meals to us, you've helped us uh, in those first couple of nights with air mattresses before our beds arrived, and so we we are a very thankful family to you. In fact, right from the very beginning, uh, in the search process even, uh, we felt the warmth of the people of Snowden Baptist Church. So be encouraged that way. Um, I could go on with thanks. Uh, but I just want to say, as we begin this morning, that this is a big move for our family. Um, because not only have we relocated some 3,600 kilometers east of all that was familiar to us, Um, We have also landed in a culture, as Hugh mentioned briefly, that is admittedly uh, somewhat different uh, than we were accustomed to. I want to give you a few examples just so you know uh, what I'm talking about. So the first time that I turned right on a red light here, (laughs) um, I I heard the music suddenly of several uh, car horns honking. I thought it was a nice way to welcome you to Quebec, but I couldn't, couldn't figure out why. Um, so that is definitely a difference from Alberta, where you can always turn right on a red light. If you stop first, you can always turn right on a red light. Uh, of course, it goes without saying that uh, there is the issue of language, which is a live issue in our home right now, especially since the kids up to this point have been 100% Anglophone, but now are exposed daily to French instruction. Uh, je n'ai pas parle français. <laughs> but I hope to learn. (laughs) Other differences we've noticed. Uh, One big one. There are no 7-Elevens anywhere to be seen here. (laughs) Uh, If you don't know what 7-Eleven is, come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, But Silas and I in particular are missing our our Slurpees. Um, While we're on the subject of food, I also miss my strawberry cream cheese on my Tim Hortons bagels which I have not been able to find here uh, since moving here. But judging by how my girth is blessed, I should probably leave that behind in Alberta anyway. Um, What else? Well, I was shocked in a pleasant way when I learned that you don't get a monthly water bill here. Uh, To me, that's unprecedented. That's unheard of. It's it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I could go on. Uh, We have experienced what I would classify as some mild culture shock uh, in moving here. Mild 
culture shock. No doubt there are some of you who moved to Canada from other nations and you experience culture shock at a much greater level than our family has. Ours has been a mild culture shock just because we only moved a few provinces uh, over here. But all of this got me thinking some about the experience of exile. It got me thinking on the experience of having to leave your homeland in order to go live in a foreign place. Now, friends, it seems from the biblical story, and listen closely, it seems that exile has always been bound up with and connected to the people of God. We are a people of exile. Of course, exile happens very early in the biblical narrative in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were exiled away from the Garden of Eden because of their disobedience to God. And then exile happens again in the very next chapter of Scripture in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain is driven away from the presence of the Lord. Still in Genesis, we could add the exile experience of Abraham, calling himself, as he does, a sojourner and a foreigner, as he found himself amongst the Hittites. We might talk about the exile moment of Jacob, running for his life after cheating his brother. We might also add the exile experience of Joseph, who was, we remember, sold by his family into slavery in a foreign place called Egypt, which is where the book of Genesis, or Exodus begins. Still later in the biblical story, we could talk, of course, about the exile experiences of Moses fleeing to Midian and David fleeing from Saul. And, of course, in the Old Testament... We have the exile writ large, don't we? In the story, first of all, of the northern kingdom of Israel, who in 722 BC was exiled to the land of Assyria, and then perhaps the most well-known exile experience of the Bible happened a little later in 587 BC when the southern kingdom of Judah fell and was exiled out of their land into a foreign place called Babylon. The people of God throughout history have been a people of exile. Now concerning that last exile moment that I talked about, the one in 587 BC when the southern kingdom was exiled to Babylon, perhaps one of the best and most colorful descriptions of of that exile that I could find is given by Eugene Peterson who writes this. I want you to listen to this description of the exile. He says, Israel was taken into exile in 587 BC. The people were uprooted from the place in which they were born. The land that had been promised to them, which they had possessed, in which their identity as a people of God had been formed, was gone. They were forced to travel across the Middle Eastern desert 700 miles, leaving home, temple, and hills. In the new land, 
Babylon, customs were strange. Amen? (laughs) Customs were strange, the language incomprehensible, and the landscape oddly flat and featureless. All the familiar landmarks were gone. The weather was different. I'm hoping for good things here in Montreal. (laughs) The weather was different. The faces, he says, were unrecognized and unrecognizing. Friends, what must it have been like to be exiled like that? Forced to leave your homeland, compelled to go to a very foreign environment where suddenly, listen, suddenly the shock of losing the land that had been promised to your fathers was now hitting home in a very hard and difficult way, forced now to live in this place called Babylon, where suddenly you realize there's no more temple, neither can you go back to it, forced to realize that your king had been overtaken by the Babylonians, and now the whole promise of kings in the line of David was in serious question. I can only imagine the trouble that the exiles were facing in that moment. Land, king, and temple, all seemingly gone forever. Now, friends, what I find very arresting, very remarkable, and very sobering is this. That in the letter called 1 Peter, that's found in the New Testament, found on page 857 of your pew Bible, in 1 Peter, the church, so Snowden Baptist, local manifestation of the Church of Jesus Christ, Renfrew Baptist that we just came from, name your church, you and I, who are the church, As born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we are understood to be, in the Apostle Peter's way of reckoning, elect exiles in this world. Or, we might translate it, elect strangers in this world. I wonder, Christian, have you perceived yourself as an elect, chosen Exile, living here in the city of Montreal, even if you've lived here all your life, did you know that as a believer in Jesus, the New Testament calls you an elect exile? That's how Peter identifies the church. You and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, are, we need to understand this morning, chosen strangers In this world, the church in Peter's divinely inspired writing is a group of people who are foreign aliens. People who have been born from above, who belong to another better country. Our citizenship is where, according to Philippians, is in heaven. But yet for now, we live in this situation as we do, scattered across the globe as we are, being salt and light in the midst of the old age 
that is fading away, living amongst the lost as God's new creation ambassadors. Today I want to preach from the subject, Alien Invasion. Now if you looked at that title this morning and thought maybe the new pastor was coming in here to preach conspiracy theories... Uh, about space aliens landing in ships and invading the earth, and that maybe we would have to revisit the hiring of this pastor, uh, you can rest at ease. The alien, the title Alien Invasion actually was borrowed from page 405 of Peter Enz's excellent commentary on the book of Exodus, where he says, listen, that God has masterminded an alien alien invasion of the world. Enns explains what he means. He says, we who are in Christ, are you in Christ this morning? We who are in Christ are from above. Our citizenship is in heaven since we have been raised with Christ. Amen. We are therefore ideally suited, says Enns, ideally suited to set examples to the world of how life is to be lived. So I trust that it's clear that by alien invasion this morning, I mean to say that God has seen to it, listen, he has seen to it that his alien colony called the church has been birthed and is being birthed and is currently on mission invading the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are you spending your days? Are you on mission as God's elect exiles spreading the gospel in whatever context you find yourself in? I want to show you in a moment exactly where it is in scripture that I'm getting this idea that the church is made up of aliens and or exiles. But first, just a brief few words about the letter called 1 Peter that we're launching into today. Uh, We need to understand, I think, just a little bit about who it was that wrote this letter and when he wrote it, and why he wrote it, and who his audience was. So, first of all, very quickly, who authored 1 Peter? Well, to put it straight, Peter the Apostle wrote 1 Peter. How do we know that? Well, because Peter names himself, if you look at your Bible, he names himself in the opening verse of the letter, And furthermore, he also identifies himself in the first verse of chapter 5 as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now that certainly would fit with what we know about Peter uh, being present as he was during the moment of Christ's passion. Peter wrote 1 Peter. And we can be pretty sure that Peter wrote this letter called 1 Peter from the city of Rome toward the end of his life. Probably this letter was written about 63 A.D., give or take a year or two. And Peter intended, listen, he intended that this letter be distributed to local churches that were spread out over a huge area. An area that was actually about 129,000 square miles. The local churches in this huge area that would receive the letter were made up of a diversity of people. Mostly they were Gentile people, but there were also some who were Jewish. 
And their situation is perhaps best summarized uh, by Karen Jobes in her commentary. She says, listen, Canadians living in 2016, listen, listen to the description of Peter's readers. Job says, because of their Christian faith, Peter's readers were being marginalized by their society. Alienated in their relationships and threatened with, if not experiencing, a loss of honor and socioeconomic standing and possibly worse. Now, folks, I want to read that description of Peter's readers again because I personally am amazed at how much it resonates with and describes what's already happening in Canada in 2016. Job says, again, because of their Christian faith, Peter's readers were being marginalized by their society. Do you feel it? Do you resonate with it? Alienated in their relationships and threatened with, if not experiencing, a loss of honor and socioeconomic standing and possibly worse. Now, if any of us find our times troubling... Uh, to one degree or another, as we try to live for Christ and obey him and honor him in a culture that denies his lordship, be encouraged. There is much delicious nourishment for your soul in this letter called 1 Peter that we're going to walk through for several weeks Much here that I'm praying will strengthen us in our walk with Christ as we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. My prayer is that our witness in this culture, through spending time in 1 Peter and praying through it with one another, that our witness in this culture will be emboldened, that it will be strengthened as we sit under this part of God's word uh, for the next several weeks. Peter writes this letter to encourage the church, to encourage the church to stand firm in the true grace of God. He says as much in 1 Peter 5.12. He wants the church who, because of troubles and persecutions and difficulties, may sometimes feel tempted to waver in the faith. He wants the church to stand firm in the true grace of God. A grace that is already ours because of Jesus Christ. As Tom Schreiner has put it, and I love this, Schreiner teaches at Southern where I'm doing my doctor of ministry right now. Schreiner is a great New Testament and biblical theologian, a great New Testament commentator. He says, the message of 1 Peter can be summarized as a call to stand in grace, 5.12. There's your summary of why Peter wrote the letter, 5.12. He says, Peter did not call his readers to earn God's grace or to strive to obtain a grace that isn't theirs. No, they are to stand in a grace that is already theirs. The grace is already ours because of Jesus Christ. We are to stand firm in it. And Peter's going to help us as he unpacks his letter how to do that, what that looks like. Well, that was a long introduction, wasn't it? 
uh, before now coming at long last to the text of the letter itself. And all we want to do today is to look at the first two verses of 1 Peter. And admittedly, the bulk of our focus for the remaining time is going to be on verse 1. Now, I know it was already read uh, very well for us this morning. Thank you, Robbie, for reading. Uh, But I want to read it again. So would you please stand out of reverence for God and his revealed word as I read to you the opening two verses of 1 Peter one more time? I think it's good for us to hear the word of God whenever we're together as much as we can. Peter, under the inspiration of the Lord of heaven and earth, writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian thing happening here. The foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. We have Father, Spirit, Son there. And sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Thank you. You may be seated. Now let's walk through these verses. First of all, we note here that Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now the story of how Jesus himself appointed Peter as as an apostle is found in the third chapter of Mark, verses 13 through 19. We won't go there and read it, but you can reference that later. An apostle is one sent by the sender. One commissioned with the authority of the sender. Jesus commissioned 12 men to be apostles, and Peter was one of the 12. Peter was also one of who we might call the inner three, along with James and John. The inner three, Peter, James, and John, were privileged enough to be with Jesus at the moment of his transfiguration. The inner three were also privileged to walk with Jesus into Gethsemane. At the end of the day, what we need to see here as Peter opens his letter identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ is the concept of authority. As an apostle who was personally appointed by Jesus Christ, Peter must be listened to. Amen? We must take his authority as the very authority of Jesus Christ. As Tom Schreiner again has put it, The letter called 1 Peter does not represent good advice, but a binding apostolic word for the church. As Peter Davids has put it, the letter is to be seen not as, listen, not as the pious opinions of a well-wishing friend, but as the authoritative word of one who speaks for the Lord of the church himself. So I'm praying, folks, that you and I will listen well, that we will listen well, that we will have ears to hear as we travel through the Holy Spirit being our helper, as we travel through 1 Peter, and that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then his addressees. Notice he says, 
to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, the place names given here represent an area of approximately 129,000 square miles. The letter was to be distributed in a circuit to the local churches in that massive area. And Peter calls the people of the church God's elect strangers in the world. Now the concept of being elect, first of all, comes straight out of the Old Testament where especially in the book of Deuteronomy, but also in Isaiah and certain places in the Psalms, Israel was identified as chosen or elected by God. And elected for what purpose? Ultimately, Israel was redeemed, Exodus 14, was redeemed to be the new Adam to be the new Adam who would accomplish what Adam failed to do, which was to spread the glory of God and God's dominion throughout the earth. Election, we might argue, was ultimately for mission. And God outlines the chosenness of Israel for mission to the world, especially in a place like Exodus chapter 19. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.1 that the church is elect, the church is chosen, but also that we in the church are strangers in your pew Bible, strangers, or as it's translated in other versions, exiles. Now again, what does he mean exactly? Well, friends, I am convinced with the the context of the entire letter of 1 Peter in mind, with the whole of it in mind, that what Peter is talking about primarily when he calls the church strangers or exiles is that we are people, listen, we are people who because of our birth from above, are you born again? Because of our birth from above, who because of our aliveness in Jesus Christ and our God-birthed desire to love him and follow him, because of all that, we are people who experience a certain estrangement from the society in which we live. As Christians, we believe that the risen Jesus is the Lord of the church. Amen? We believe that the Lord is Lord over our individual lives. Amen? We believe that the Lord is Lord of heaven and earth. Amen? And because of that very fact, we are aliens within the wider culture in which we live. Exiles. Strangers. While we are people who live and work and play in this world, our peculiarity is that we desire a better country, a heavenly one, to quote Hebrews eleven sixteen, And the world, for its part, increasingly now finds our faith to be off-putting and strange, to quote Schreiner again. We are strangers, exiles, Aliens as his church. 
And friends, what we would do well to recognize, and I want you to listen carefully, is that we are following, listen, we are following the one who was the ultimate exile or alien in this world, Jesus Christ. He is the one, listen, who was exiled into Egypt as an infant. Right from the beginning of his time on earth. Exiled into Egypt as an infant. Driven outside the city to the cross as an adult. Jesus is the ultimate stranger. His program was not well received by the world and so he ended up on a cross. Now, I want to ask you, do you feel this strangerness that Peter talks about in the first verse of his letter? Do you feel it? Well, listen to the rather staggering thing that the Lord of the church says in John 15. Now, he's talking to you this morning, and he says... Don't look at anybody else. Just listen to this. Jesus is talking to you through his word. He says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, if you belonged to the world, It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. He says, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant. Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? No servant is greater than his master. He says, if they persecuted me, Western Christians, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Anyone who desires to live a godly life will be, what? Persecuted. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, in their excellent book, Everyday Church, put it like this. They say, listen, quote, We have become outsiders just as Jesus was an outsider. We are marginal in our culture because Jesus is marginal. The cross is the ultimate expression of marginalization. And to follow him is to do what? To take up our cross daily. It is daily, they say, to experience marginalization and hostility. Being on the margins is normal Christian experience. And then they go on to say, Christendom. Now, I want to explain that word. Christendom, so in other words, that old formal alliance between church and state that was prevalent especially in Europe from the 4th century all the way up until recent days, okay? Christendom, they say, was the aberration. In other words, it wasn't normal. 
And then Chester and Timmis conclude this way. They say, rather than assume we should have a voice in the media or on Main Street, we need to regain the sense that anything other than persecution is an unexpected bonus. The church, friends, you and I, are elect exiles in this world because we are a refraction of Jesus who was the ultimate elect exile and servants are not above their master. Well, notice verse 2 of our passage just briefly. Uh, Note well here that we are elect exiles. Note the connections. We are elect exiles according to something. And we are elect exiles through something. And we are elect exiles for something. Notice the connections here. First of all, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Isn't that amazing? God had a fatherly love and concern for the people of his church before the world was even made. Second, we are elect exiles through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, here in the context, what Peter seems to be talking about is the initial cleansing, the initial cleansing of the Holy Spirit that happens at conversion that makes us God's holy people. We are made holy and we strive for holiness. Both are true. Third, we are elect exiles for something, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Again, Peter seems to be talking in this context about what happens when we are converted. We obey the gospel and we are cleansed by the blood and forgiven our sin. And then Peter closes verse 2. Notice he closes the verse with a word of grace. Now, this is Peter writing, right? Uh, Peter, of all people, grace was very near and dear to his heart. He himself, we remember the story, had experienced the amazing grace of Jesus Christ when Jesus restored him after Peter's denials. So Peter says to us, he's learned about grace. He says, I want this to be yours as well. Grace and peace be yours in abundance or be multiplied to you. Now notice the the structure here. Again, over in 512, 1 Peter 512, Peter wants the church to stand in grace, right? Despite being buffeted and assailed by persecutions, he wants the church to stand in grace. That's how he closes the letter. Here as he opens the letter, He opens with a word of grace. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. A person could classify the entire message of 1 Peter as a message of grace. Well, there's much more that we could say about these first two verses. Having briefly walked through them, we return to our controlling idea today. This idea of being God's elect exiles, as we close up here today. An an alien colony called the church, with which God has invaded his world. Now, friends, there is a balance we must strike as God's church. Some of us might be tempted to say, having heard this, 
Well, if we're exiles as the church, then, then maybe the best thing to do is to live in closed exile communities. Maybe the best thing for us is to close ourselves off from the world, to withdraw from any public engagement with the society in which we live, and just, just sort of maintain our oddness on our own as we wait for Jesus to come back for us. This is what I call the hunker-in-the-bunker mentality. If that's you, I want to tell you that a big concern in 1 Peter, as we're going to see, is just the opposite of that. A major concern in 1 Peter is, how will we as Christians engage unbelievers in our cities and in our towns? How will the elect exiles witness to pagan people who live all around us? How will we as the church declare and confess the new creation of God that has come and is coming to the lost who live around us? That's a major concern in 1 Peter. And by the way, folks, I am a dialogical preacher. I want to tell you that now. So if you feel like saying amen... If you feel like spurring the preacher on and saying, come on, sir, or anything, please do it, okay? I love that because preaching is not just me up here monologuing. It's worship for all of us. So feel free to worship. Friends, as elect exiles, the balance we must strike is to be in the world, but not of it. Or as Karen Jobes has put it, Peter exhorts Christians to engage the world as foreigners and resident aliens having a healthy respect for the society and culture in which they live, being in the world, while at the same time maintaining an appropriate separation from it, showing ourselves as not of the world. That's the balance that we must strike as the community the new creation community of God. And on this subject, I'm helped a great deal by the Cape Town Commitment. Now, if you're not familiar with the Cape Town Commitment, I want to help you become familiar with it. I'd love to see a Bible study start and walk through it because it's saturated with Scripture. (laughs) Um, The Cape Town Commitment is a marvelous document written by evangelical Christians about six years ago, to be precise. It was produced by the Lausanne Movement, And the Lausanne movement describes itself this way, as a worldwide movement that mobilizes evangelical leaders to collaborate for world evangelization. Anyway, it's part one, section seven of the Cape Town Commitment that I want to draw our attention to just in our closing moments here. The section is entitled, We Love God's World. And the introductory paragraph reads like this. It's delicious stuff. I love it. We share God's passion for his world, loving all that God has made, rejoicing in God's providence and justice throughout his creation, proclaiming the good news to all creation and all nations, and longing for the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Yes, I get excited. 
And then what follows in this section of the Cape Town commitment are five subsections. I won't read them. Five subsections where engagement with God's world, engagement with the world that you live in is unpacked and described. For example, how do we put feet on loving God's creation? What does it look like in plain terms to love the world of nations and cultures? And what might it look like to love the world's poor and suffering? To love our neighbors as ourselves? All of these questions are given real estate in this section of the Cape Town Commitment. It's all about acting as engaged exiles. Engaged exiles. Acting as people who seek a better country, to be sure, having been born from above but who are working and acting and doing and living the gospel and being light in the dark places of the world. So tons of excellent meditation there on engaging God's world for the gospel in that section of the Cape Town commitment. But then they end the section, listen, they end the section with the heading, The World We Do Not Love. The world we do not love. Friends, there is a world that we must engage and love and sacrifice for as God's elect exiles in the world. And there is a world, in, in another sense, that we must never love. There is a sense of world that we must remain strangers to as God's elect exiles. There's a sense of world that it is right for us to feel estranged from and not at home in. Now, in the Cape Town Commitment, they explain it this way. They say this, The world of God's good creation has become the world of human and satanic rebellion against God. We are commanded not to love that world of sinful desire, greed, and human pride. We confess with sorrow that exactly those marks of worldliness so often disfigure our Christian presence and deny our gospel witness. Again, the balance we must strike as God's community of elect exiles is to be in the world, proactively and creatively engaging the world for the gospel, but at the same time, not of the world. Showing ourselves differentiated from that world of human and satanic rebellion against God with its lusts and greed and pride and cruelty. So I want to ask you the question and get right up in your wheelhouse. How does this look for you this coming week? In your day-to-day, may the Holy Spirit come and strengthen each of us as elect exiles in his world. Now, another way, and then I'm done. Another way we might put this, that as God's church, we are to be both for the world and against the world at the same time. We are to be for the world, first of all. I love the way Greg Allison has outlined Christians being for the world. Greg Allison is a great writer. He says, Our mandate has not changed since the first chapter of Genesis. 
as God's believing image bearers, we are still to be fruitful and multiply. I did that three times. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. What does it look like to fulfill such a mandate in 2016? Well, listen to how Allison describes Christian engagement with his world. I love this description of being for the world and engaged in it. He says this. Christians, that's you and I, okay, take this personally. (laughs) Christians participate in the political arena. Teach school. Perform in orchestras and create sculptures. Map the human genome. Develop computer systems. Manage stock portfolios. Manufacture hybrid cars. Sell shoes. Build houses. Raise beef and milk cows and grow corn. Compete as Olympic athletes. Design skyscrapers and the like. Engagement with God's world as his elect exiles He says, moved with concern for the disenfranchised of this sin-sick world, they as human beings also engage in hurricane relief, fight against the AIDS epidemic, seek cures for cancer, provide clothes for refugees, feed the hungry, fight against genocide, teach the illiterate to read, recycle plastic and paper for the conservation of natural resources, protest government corruption, fight for biblically sanctioned human rights and other such acts of compassionate Intervention, And then Allison says, as they endeavor to provide such tangible aid for others, they realize that their brothers and sisters, according to creation, are being helped. And this is pleasing to the Lord, who has created all human beings equally in his image. But like the Cape Town commitment had done, Allison also says that there is a sense of world that we are to always be, as God's people, against. He says that the church must help its members to be compassionately critical of and justly opposed to all that, is fallen, all that in this fallen world is tainted by sin and in rebellion against Jesus Christ, head of the world and head of the church. Again, friends, what does it mean to live into our identity as God's elect exiles? It means to engage the world, have dominion, subdue, to engage the world, to be for the world, but simultaneously to be against the world, and all ultimately for the sake of the world. My time is gone, but I want you to look only at your situation and your life and your routine this coming week. Where in your situation do you feel this idea of exile that we have talked about this morning? Where does that feeling of not fitting in happen for you because you are a follower of Jesus Christ in a Christless culture? I want you to have hope, and I want you to be encouraged. The Lord of your life was an outsider. (laughs) They crucified him for his outsiderness. And they crucified him outside the city gate where God worked your redemption and brought you 
to himself. This week, my fellow exiles, with Hebrews 13, 13, I say to you, go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured in the power and in the strength that he provides. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, everything we've just said we recognize cannot be done in our own strength and by our own steam. We need the power and the help and the words and the silence in some cases of the Holy Spirit. So we pray, I pray, Lord, for each and every person here, no matter what situation they're walking into this afternoon or tomorrow morning, that you would surround them with your love and your power and your grace. Help them to live into this identity that you have given the church as your elect exiles. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.